0: we got Dr. Braxton Hunter, pretty talented
1: and well-known apologist, shared the stage with the William Lane Craig's to the Mike Lacona's to all those guys. Jonathan Pritchett, Dr. Pritchett is here and he is a New Testament guy, does a lot of stuff, a lot of podcasts, a lot of debates, so on and so forth. You can go out of this room tonight and be a Christian apologist. Now, it may not be that you're able to give the answers, but you you can be immediately when we're done here tonight, you can be an answer finder for people. We need to
0: stand up and tell men, and and more and more women, God is smarter than you, and there are consequences for all of these actions. So why don't you stop for a moment and think, you don't know what's best for you compared to what God knows is best for you.
1: Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is... Jonathan Pritchard. ...and Chris Date, uh, the head, I guess, of Rethinking Hell. Is that right? Are you the main muckety-muck in charge over there?
2: I think in terms of the 401k status, I am the president, but um, that wasn't always the case and I'm not the founder, so I guess I, I would say I'm the public face of <laughs> breathing hell. Yeah, oh,
1: well, we're really excited to have you on. We've been uh, big fans of yours for a long time and uh, you know, I, there have been a couple of times where you ha, we have talked about doing a discussion, you and I, together on an issue that we disagree about. And I've always said, no, thank you. Because when I do discussions <laughs> and debates, I prefer to win those debates. Yeah. And no one yeah, wins but, against Chris
2: Date. <laughs> yeah, but as you know, as soon as I saw your debate with Matt Dillahunty, I texted you saying it's I who don't want to debate you. So, oh, that's very uh, kind of you. I guess, this is great. I guess our respective... I guess our respective fans will just have to be disappointed that we're never going to touch each other with a 10-foot pole
1: and debate <laughs> yeah well maybe may, depending on how it goes we may press back and forth a little bit before this is done but uh really sure. what we want to do first and foremost in case people don't list very listen very long is to say that there is a conference for rethinking hell coming up, yes. and uh, both of us are speaking at it. Obviously, the president right. of rethinking hell is going to be there, but Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, my partner in crime, is also yeah. going to be there. And My understanding is that he's going to be there in the capacity of a fence sitter. Yes. So we'll. Exp- I'll just briefly explain that. Um, there, uh, Too cowardly to pick a
0: position. Is that where, is that where
1: we're <laughs> Chris is, uh... you know, so so rethinking hell. Uh, many of the people that are involved with that ministry are people that take what is known as a conditional immortality view of the nature of hell. And I'll let Chris unpack that a little bit in just a moment. Uh, those of you, probably many of you, because I think it's still probably the most common view among evangelicals uh, in the United States, who take the view that, uh, that hell is just, whether, whether it's literal flames and fire or whether that's figurative, but it's, it's some actual existence, uh, that you will be conscious and tormented in some form or fashion forever, and that it will never end, billions and billions of years, and you're just getting started. Uh, if you take that view, that is called the traditionalist view, um, not to be confused with traditionalist soteriology, which is something else. Um, and so Jonathan is a fence sitter between tho- at least those two positions. Yes. And uh, so, so that's gonna be exciting. Tell us a little bit about that conference and when it's gonna be, Chris.
2: Well, so first of all, if if people want to check it out, they can go to RethinkingHellConference.com, and there's a list of the plenary speakers, including Dr. Pritchett and me, um, and there's and Marvin also Jones. Uh, uh, yeah Marvin Jones. So he he and Lindsay Brooks are yeah. the 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 believers in eternal torment who are doing the plenary speaking. You're the fence sitter. I'm the soul person convinced of conditionalism. Uh, Marvin Jones is from Louisiana College, I believe. Yes. And Lindsay Brooks was one of the staff at apologetics.com radio several years ago. And he's a guy, he's been a breakout speaker at one of our conferences. And the topic, the theme is going to be hell and the gospel. And so each of us are going to be talking uh about some sort of relationship of our own choosing between uh the nature duration of hell uh and how and its relationship to the gospel so some breakout speakers and plenary speakers might say be saying that it's really important to the gospel that it be understood in a particular way others might be saying that you know it doesn't affect the the gospel and that's why as christians who are hold the different sides of this view we can uh, we, we can still fellowship with one another, um, and so on and so forth. The, the, the relationship between hell and the gospel that each individual speaker will speak to uh, is up to each of those people individually. And the dates are going to be, I think, August 16th and 17th. It's a Friday and Saturday in Enid, Oklahoma, which I believe is about an hour and a half drive from Oklahoma City. And um, there will also be
0: for Church, those- right. What's that? Wade Rolls. Yes, right. Yeah. He's one mm-hmm. of my he, he's one of my heroes. I really I really like Wade. He's a he's a very good man and he does a lot of important um contrarian kick you know, kicking against the grain with the Southern Baptist Convention. So I really that that, that has endeared him to me very
1: well very much. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Is that he's a personality a trait that you think you share with him? Is that what <laughs>
0: yes. that is? Well he is so much more uh, congenial than I am, but you know he's a super nice guy. But he does raise a lot of uh, issues that yeah uh, could be unpopular. But sure. I, I, it, when I when I saw that it was his church, I was like,
1: yeah, that figures. Yeah, if, it, if it's in here, <laughs> you know, yeah yeah yeah. So okay, well that sounds really exciting. What else did you have? Something else you wanted to say? Well, about he's got that?
0: a new. Bo- he has a recent book that I yeah, uh, yeah. One of the one of the better uh why you should or shouldn't like Calvinism. You know. Yeah, there's so many of these "Hooray for Calvinism" or "Calvinism Stinks" books out there. I don't really recommend any of them, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. <laughs> they, they they don't help. I mean, go consult commentaries and and other things like that. But I thought this was was good uh, because it did raise a lot of issues that you don't normally find in like the uh, uh, the Roger Olson or the Michael Horton types. I mean, some of overlap, sure, but. Raise some other outside of the box uh, approaches to it, which I think is what you get with a Chris date. And I was not familiar with the other guy; did not even recall his name at the moment. But um, Chris can tell us what's what's yeah. the other guy's name.
2: Yeah, uh, well, so the book is called Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being? Uh, If people want to check it out, they can go to my Amazon Authors page. It's amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date. And it's a two-view debate book with a guy named Gil Van Order Jr. Uh, I don't know anything about him, but he's representing a pretty standard, I think, Arminian answer to that question. And I'm representing a um, Calvinist one. And, uh, Really, as as I think Dr. Pritchard can attest to, my focus in my presentation, my side of the debate, was really uh, more more concerned with the issue of meticulous providence. So, so the notion that God foreordains everything that takes place in time. Because for me, uh, if that's true, then it follows that uh, He predestines, you know, the eternal destiny of every individual human being. But I do talk about texts to that latter point as well. It's just the main topic is meticulous providence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I, I need to uh, go back and read that again. And you've got another book upcoming with uh, Dale Tuggy. Is that right? Uh, yeah. You had a debate with him and I saw that debate. And yeah, uh, I want to tell you, I thought it was it was really good. I think uh, I think he was a uh, formidable opponent. And um, I, I thought that uh, for a position that I can't understand anyone <laughs> holding, uh, I thought that he did as good a job with it as I can imagine someone doing. Uh, but um, I, I, I think you did your typical. I think
0: you took it apart, yeah. uh, especially by the Q&A. Um, I, I thought that he did okay, like you said, for as good as you could do. And and certainly uh, when you do a debate, you want to debate somebody that's got a credential at or above your level, so it makes you look even better <laughs> when you win. And I think you, I think you did it with um, Part of it for me, and he can't help this, uh, you know, was the whole young Ben Stein routine that he that he does when he when he speaks, you know, from <laughs> Ferris Bueller. But I mean, that, that's not something he can help. But I, I didn't I didn't find him all that engaging. And then his material, I I don't think that he presented any compelling arguments for his position. It, it seemed very. It, it's the the kind of. Argumentation you could get just from any layperson in those kinds of churches, mm-hmm. I, I would think. He didn't really go uh, too much depth, in my opinion. So,
1: well, uh, Chris, yeah. let me let me ask you a question about that. So, I don't want to yeah. say anything negative about him as a person, or his, I do. He's a heretic, <laughs> or his uh, performance there. But I, I, but I do want to say that I think um, what some people don't understand as a debater, there are a couple of things that I've picked up, and I, I'm I would think you would concur is for one thing, and I don't mean this to sound, well, I'll just say it, is you don't get to believe whatever you wanna believe. You have to believe what actually you think is true. And I think there are a number of people out there who hold particular pet doctrinal positions uh, because it's comforting to them or it's what they were raised with or whatever. But if you're going to debate something, wouldn't you agree that you have to, you don't get to pick and choose you have to really believe it because you're going to have to go out there and defend it and if you don't believe what you're saying yourself i mean it's it's a really it's a really tough spot to be in
2: well so first of all i'll be interested to hear sort of what the application to this particular debate is of of that thought uh and and i'm interested in you know i'd like you to share that in a minute but i by and large i agree with you The, the only caveat is that when i Uh, present a case and and defend a case for the doctrine of conditional immortality. Uh, I defend a a version that I think is going to be most uh, compatible with my evangelicals who are all dualists, you know, and I know that the, the issue of dualism versus physicalism, anthropological, that is, uh, is something that we might talk a little bit about today, but I am not a dualist. I'm, I'm what's called a non-reductive physicalist, uh, but I know that that is arguably an even harder pill to swallow for most evangelicals, and so I defend uh, and use language of dualism, and I just sort of assume it in my case because I want people to know that conditionalism does not require any particular view of the intermediate state and of the human soul and stuff like that. So the point is just to say, I do think there isn't a a degree to which you could defend a position you don't actually hold. Um, For me, it's it's strategic. uh, And it's it's not the main thing I'm defending, right? It's sort of a secondary issue that I'm um, uh, that, I'm, that i'm trying to be strategic about but then anyway yeah i'm interested to know what, where you're getting you
1: know, okay, what you're getting so, to yeah. so for instance um yeah we all have philosophical defeaters right we all have things that i don't know if this is the case but if this is the case then it would it would render the argument that you're bringing uh not necessarily true but at the same time here's a simpler example i would like and and people might be bothered with my saying this but i can't imagine why i would like personally <laughs> as a human being in my finitude I would like for something like Evangelical Universalism to be true. I would like to believe that's the case. Um, But I don't get to just believe whatever I want to believe. If I'm going to have to stand up and defend this with an opponent whose job is to stand over there and take apart what I'm saying, I have to believe what I actually think is the truth and that I can defend from Scripture and philosophy and history or whatever else. So um, I, I guess I mean by that there are a lot of people in the theological landscape um and that we run into on social media that believe a number of things. Um and and I think that when you're pressed into debating that and backing up what you're saying on stage, that's where I've experienced in my own personal life having to modify beliefs uh mm. because I realized this isn't just something I can well I'll think about that tomorrow. No, tomorrow's the debate. You better figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah.
0: I, one of the things I like what Chris is doing. It, it, this was, and you said so in the debate, but you said this was a little bit out of your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you've got uh, your your, for reasons that escape me, your affinity to reform theology. No, <laughs> and, and so you've got that book out. And I mean, there, there's there's uh, people that I know, good friends of ours, who could uh, take a, a a page out of that playbook to diversify. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of being a, um, I won't say one-string banjo, but how about something like a a, a one-trick pony? Uh, so, so, yeah, I love you, Layton. No, I, I I think it's really <laughs> good that that you're that you're doing all of these other things because here's one thing that Braxton tells me all the time: if you pick one central issue and you're wrong about that, like say mm-hmm. your whole thing is prophecy and you and you you stake your flag on the eschatology, you know, hill and your view, whatever it is, pre-trib, post-trib. All millennial, premillennial, whatever, and, and you're wrong. But everything, your entire ministry is just that one issue, and you're mm-hmm. wrong about it. It's kind of a
1: your whole ministry would be wrong. Whereas <laughs> if you if you debate, preach, teach widely, you'll probably be wrong about some things, but you'll be right uh, broadly, hopefully. Yeah. But the other thing I was going to say about that debate, and I know we're kind of just meandering through topics here, but um, the, the the other thing I was going to say about that debate is I don't think people realize. Uh, the degree to which um, it matter it should matter to the debater. obviously truth should be the most important thing and having good content that demonstrates the truth but audience perception, is important in terms of reaching the people that we want to reach for the kingdom. And I think when watching that debate, again, not wanting to say anything negative about your opponent in terms of his person, I will say that I think you came across much more likable. And in that sense, I would suspect that the audience member would be more inclined to appreciate your case.
0: And I thought he was likable too. And I knew just from his post afterwards, like, he did his best, and they were still like, for, for what you said, a very hostile audience. I mean, those people, you, you said, were pretty, pretty amped up against your position for the majority of them. Not, not that they were rude to you, or, or they might have been, but that, that they were not a friendly crowd to your position. Is that is that right? They were, yeah,
2: they were very much not a friendly uh, crowd to my position. They were, however, uh, extremely kind and. Right. and friendly uh, to me as a person, yeah.
0: Right, they, 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 didn't, they, they weren't rude to you, you know, when you walked into the church, right? Or No, okay.
2: Dr. Tuggy, I think, was probably the most rude to me. Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: No, I mean, then, in the debate,
2: I I, so I was I, think oh. I was talking to Braxton on the phone uh, a couple of days ago, and I was explaining that, you know, I went in trying to be as absolutely kind and, and gentle in the debate as possible, and that especially in his rebuttal, uh, it seemed like his claws started to come out, and, and for better or for worse, mine did as a result. And so it, it, I was I was a little bit taken aback by how uh, aggressive and, and hostile he seemed to me at times. Now, you guys might have gotten a different impression. But that well, was mine. yeah.
0: I, I mean, after my debate in Houston with a couple of uh, weird Calvinist, hyper Calvinist type guys, <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, nothing phases me anymore after you sit through that and you're just like, so nobody is rude after that. Those those Good point. I mean, that was kind of a circus. But no, I with with, with people like you, that's such an important debate because everyone who watches our channel and you know, our students and I I know this gets a bad rap, but I'm pretty much a paleo orthodoxy mere Christianity guy. And mm-hmm. which means I have uh you know a, a wide birth of ecumenicalism for me. I can I can welcome it uh, probably more people than even you as brothers. But even for me, when you're going up against uh, somebody like Dale's Huggy, that's even outside my, you know, boundaries, you know, uh, of this orth- mere orthodoxy. And so yeah. those kind of debates are important because we t- we forget that those people are out there, uh, yeah. especially in the apologetics arena. Uh, we- you know, we always think about atheists, but we forget that there's pagans and, and people of other religions out there as well. Well, atheists and Islam get a lot of attention, but uh, very few Mormon debates anymore. Uh, yeah. the, but you also have various types of Unitarian and Oneness Christian branches out there, and they're not getting any attention because evangelicals uh, like to fight with one another over all of these secondary and tertiary <laughs> issues. You know, so the but anyway, I,
1: I think what you're doing
0: is important, and I, and I really appreciated that. Now, as far as the rethinking hell, there. Uh, when I say that I'm a fence sitter, we're
1: we're really uh, channel surfing yeah, topics. Yes, but here. I'm I'm that's trying okay, to bring it back right. to what
0: I what what we're having him here for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't you don't have. Chris date on your program and then never get into the nitty gritty of hell. Yeah. Well, well maybe, maybe one day, right? <laughs> one day you can have me on and not talk about the topic of hell. But at this point in my ministry, yeah, that's kind of, uh, well, I mean, you we don't do want to, we've kind of stopped talking about the whole Calvinism thing. So I don't want to talk about that. I
1: definitely don't want to talk about Calvinism with Chris date, mm-hmm. but I, I, will, oh, I, I would, I but, maybe, but I will say, this. Jonathan will, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but I do want to say this at some point before we're done if you would like to, and if you don't, I'll just cut this part out of the uh, of the thing. But if you would like to give your thoughts on your interaction with Layton, I know you just did that with Sean Cole and Tyler Villa. Um, mm. you, you know, our audience heard Layton's thoughts about that. And if you would like to balance Yeah, four
0: that, hours and 42 minutes of his thoughts. On no, no, no. They, they heard him on our
1: show. Oh, no, no,
0: no. I, I was talking about after the Sean Cole thing, I yeah. looked at his YouTube. It said four hours. And four, I was like, nope.
1: I wanted to hear <laughs> what he had to say, but when I saw it was that long, I thought, no, there's no, there's no way. But if you would like to at some point, feel free to talk a little bit about that because that's only fair.
2: Yeah, well, that's good. And, and you know, if you guys ever want to have me on to go in a little more detail, um, we could talk about that. The the only thing I, I think I want to say right now is just that, um, and I've said this, I think on a couple of different shows since that debate with Leighton, um, I went in. Uh, simply affirming meticulous providence, whatever the mechanics, um, and and so and it didn't even occur to me until maybe halfway through the debate that Leighton was challenging not meticulous providence but a specific. You know, mechanism of uh, meticulous providence. It, you know what he calls causal determinism, and that was the that's the biggest, the most frustrating thing for me since the debate is that he he sort of framed it as if this was a causal determinist, and my you know me defending causal determinism, and a, and a and a libertarian free will person going head to head, when when that was never my argument at all i think there are all sorts of possible means conceivable and otherwise that god could meticulously foreordain all that takes place in time and you know, arguments for that kind of got pushed to the side because he kept repeating his arguments against uh, and his objections to causal determinism. And so, I wish if we could go back and do it again, uh, my my hope would be that we can make it clear from the outset: I'm not arguing for a particular means by which God foreordains everything that takes place in time, mm-hmm. um, so that we can sort of focus on that well, and not. Would you say that we
1: are, are flattening things out? Oh come on, <laughs> now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay.
2: Just to be clear if you guys haven't listened to the episode. We have. That's
1: your- why I was I was prompt, I was teeing you up. That's me teeing okay. you up. Yeah. What? See, well, the thing is, we we often in our camp, uh, we we often uh, make a kind of a joke out of the fact that we're told we're flattening <laughs> things out. Yeah. Uh, specifically, yeah. I think James White uh, has criticized us for flattening things out, and yeah. so uh, that's one thing they were punching back on on the yeah. show was. Uh, yeah, you make a joke out of it if you like, but that's what we think you're doing. Oh, right?
0: I make plenty of jokes. I, I think I said, of all the hot air they blew, they couldn't inflate that flat balloon. Isn't that what I said about it? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what a fully orb diamond-shaped non-flattened compatibilism across the five dimensions actually means. What what is but anyway I love anyway I'm just I was I was teeing
1: Chris up not you
0: it's my show <laughs>
1: <laughs> no man uh, but I want to get back to hell I want to talk about hell okay, okay. Uh, well before okay and so you to already segue said before to, and then you no co- to segue back into hell okay huh, um, let's let's ask Chris because I kind of gave uh, what could be an oblique definition of the traditionalist eternal conscious <clears throat> suffering view a moment ago so for those that may not be aware we did two episodes on this last year about this time but for those that may not be aware uh let's hear it from the horse's mouth and let chris tell us uh what conditional immortality is all about how why is it fair or not fair to uh use that synonymous with annihilationism and and just talk about that a little bit yeah
2: Okay, yeah, but, but before I do, I, I want to add just a little bit more flesh to the um, flesh that you put on the bones of the traditional view because you ca- you you couched it as some sort of a. Ter- suffering, whether it's literal flames or not, and that's all true, but there's a fundamental um, aspect to that traditional view that you left out, which is that we're talking about in the traditional view, we're talking about resurrected, physically alive, embodied human beings suffering for eternity. And that's important, and I'll get to why in a second, but that's important. We're not talking about, uh, you know, when you die, uh, when an unbeliever dies, his soul goes to hell, and there it remains disembodied for eternity in flames. That's not what we're talking about. These are that's not what you know, Jesus muscles. was talking
0: about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and we're about. talking about what's that? Well, in, in Matthew twenty-five, I mean, there is a general resurrection of the dead, uh, and 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 some go on to eternal punishment, however you define that, and some go on to eternal life. And it, and, you're, right. and we 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 I think a lot of uh, NT Wright talks about this a lot. How how Christians, especially in the West, have kind of punted on the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection. You know, it's it's just disembodied souls floating in heaven, and and so I think sometimes we do think, yes, we'll have resurrection bodies. We'll we'll, we'll actually think about First Corinthians fifteen, but then we'll but those other, and you see the you see the um, the memes of the people in hell, and they look kind of they don't look like humans so much as they look like outlines uh, of humans, you know, kind of ghoulish, um, but it's it's more like what you say, it's, it's, it, they would look like us, uh, you know, muscle tissue, whatever, maybe not blood, but you know,
2: well, I don't see any, I, I would expect there to be blood as well, but either way it's embodied, it's physical. Um, you know, the, the, a disembodied conscious state, if such a state exists is, is called the intermediate state for a reason. It's between death and resurrection. Um, and it's after resurrection that the debate about hell begins. So, so that's the traditional view. It's physically alive people who are made immortal physically, so they can physically live forever in torment. Now, with that in mind, or held in existence, why, right? Well, I mean, so I don't, I don't distinguish between I- innate immortality and sort of God just keeping you alive forever because immortal, I- at least biblically speaking, isn't about uh, uh, some sort of change to your um, ability to die. It's right. a statement of whether or not you do die. Right. Um. And and. I mean, and I think that we would all have to agree that even after God renders us immortal, whatever specifically that means, he could, if he wanted, and if it didn't violate his promises to us, he could zap us out of existence at any moment. Um, So we still, even in our resurrection bodies, depend upon him for our existence. Right. So, that's why you call so whether,
0: it the gift. You know, it speaks of the gift of immortality. You know, that's uh, right, and yeah. that's that's the key. The the difference, at least from my
2: perspective, between that traditional view that I just described and the view that we at Rethinking Hell defend, which we call conditional immortality. Right. And by the way, that's not a new term. That stretches at least as far back to the early nineteenth century. Um, in fact, that's the phrase that uh, my view was known as all throughout the world in the in the nineteenth century. Um, the word annihilationism uh which we'll talk about in a moment uh goes back a little bit further but not a whole lot so so the the main difference between these views is that whereas the traditional view says everybody gets immortality um when they're resurrected from the dead whether they're going to go on to live forever in the new new heavens and new earth or whether they're going to go live forever in in hell the, the um, conditional immortality view is immortality is a gift that is conditioned upon uh, salvation. So that's why it's called conditional immortality, the, the opposite, the traditional view. And for that matter, universalism would be unconditional immortality. Everybody gets immortality regardless of whether or not they meet any sort of condition. Um, now, the reason why it's called annihilationism sometimes is because if we if a conditionalist is a traditional dualist uh when it comes to human nature meaning they believe that we have material bodies and immaterial souls uh those the dualists typically believe that those immaterial souls remain conscious between death and resurrection uh, and that includes many conditionalists but conditionalists believe that that's only true of the first death uh, according to Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus says, "Don't fear uh, man who can kill only the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear God who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna." So dualist conditionalists believe that while the first death separates body and soul, and the soul remains conscious until the resurrection, in the second death, both body and soul are destroyed, so the whole person ends up gone forever. And that's why it's sometimes called annihilationism. But the reason why I prefer conditionalism is because it's, it's much annihilationism is kind of a myopic view. You know, conditionalism is a much bigger picture about life about immortality about salvation about the the cleansing of sin from the cosmos. It's a really big picture thing uh, of which uh, annihilationism is just a small part. So, right, so yeah, so, conditionalism so, is just go ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah, right there. Okay, so broader in, in, in scope and in, in covering more ideas than just what happens? What know? happens? To that wicked in hell, yeah. Right. Um, but within that, so I, I my memory's fuzzy, but I, I do remember in your debate with Phil Hernandez. Is that right? Fernandez? Phil, Phil, Phil Fernandez, Fernandez, I think. Phil Fernandez, okay. Um, in your debate with him, you did, I think you used the phrase, a violent death. Mm. Um, or something close to that. Um, That's right. And so I, I, I was curious, because some people get the impression that you have a Thanos finger snap uh, at judgment, and they're gone. You know, they start to just turn into ash. Uh, others will posit maybe a period of punishment that ends in a pretty gruesome death, drawing on the imagery of destruction uh, in the Old Testament uh, that is sometimes marshaled as text for this, that, well, this is what happened to them, and you see, you know, charred bones and everything else, you know I mean, it's, or, or just the, the parish is utter, you know, and just nothing left, things like that. So there, would you say there is a spectrum within your camp? And could you mm-hmm. elaborate on kind of what that spectrum is? And and um, what are the bounds for that?
2: Yeah. So uh, at one end of the spectrum, I think you have people like John Stackhouse. Um, John Stackhouse was the was a professor at Regent College, I think, in Canada. Now he's at the other end of Canada at a different college. And um, he wrote uh, the foreword to our first book, Rethinking Hell, and he wrote a cont- contribution to our second book. He he is he believes that punishment is by definition, at least, okay, let me rephrase that, I think that for him punishment is primarily a conscious experience. So for so in his view, um, the lost, when they are respected, are indeed punished for some period of time as a, um, you know, commensurate with the, their degree of guilt. So yeah. some longer than others, some more intensely than others, what have you. And then once they've paid that debt, then they face eternal punishment, which is death forever. Okay. Now, we at Rethinking Hell object to that on a, for a number of reasons, and we can talk about why, but first let me lay out the spectrum. So that's one end. You, you have an indefinite amount of time that the risen wicked. Uh, Uh, indefinite but for us unknown how long it will be Um, they experience punishment for their sin and then they die Uh, at another end of the spectrum would be maybe like a Thanos finger snap type of uh, thing but but they're also like nonviolent conditionless um i would think of greg boyd for example or maybe christopher christopher marshall who would say that um the the uh the final death of the lost in hell is not like the death penalty so much as god sort of unplugging them from the source of life which is god himself and so it's more like they're being permitted to die um and it may not even be very violent or, or painful i don't know so you've got that end of the spectrum as well i think where we at rethinking fall is somewhere in the middle we believe that the punishment is truly death. If, if you say that people are punished in hell for a time, commensurate it, commence it with their sin, well then how do you, how, and this is our objection to people like John Stackhouse, how can you call that eternal punishment if it's only for a finite duration? We think punishment is indeed death, and that death, the the, the privation of life goes on for eternity, that's why it's eternal punishment. Um, and we don't think there's some sort of separate protracted punishment in hell but we do think that the means by which this final death penalty can be brought about in hell can vary in terms of intensity and duration of pain so so let me give you an, an analogy um we have in earthly governments uh, a variety of different means by which capital punishment is carried out there are relatively or at least seemingly painless means like uh lethal injection yeah and i stress painless. seemingly
0: I don't want to get. What's off that? On th- I said that's not exactly painless, but I don't want to get off on that topic.
2: That's why I said seemingly, right? A lot of people <laughs> think it is, but scientists are discovering that's not quite the case. Right. Um, uh, and then there's like you know um, uh, electric chair, which is a little longer and more violent. And you've got shooting squad and so forth, right? Yeah. Each of these different means of capital punishment, they all involve varying degrees and, and durations of pain, but they all inflict the exact same penalty, and that penalty is death. And I think that that's where sort of the middle in the spectrum is that it's it's genuinely this annihilation at the end, this destruction at the end, is truly a death penalty, and it's one that will probably for many people be violent and painful, and and some and that pain may even last for a few moments, a few minutes, who knows, maybe even a few hours. Christ was on the cross for hours, right? Um, but but in all these cases, however much and however long the pain is, uh, ultimately the penalty is death itself, and, now, and that's what it brings about, and that death lasts forever.
0: Right now. As far as the repay each one according to the works, the reap what you sow principle, you know, executing punishment, Stackhouse seems to have a view, I think, that seems to make a little bit more um, out of that kind of biblical principle, whereas the intensity of the death, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that yet because it seems like I would almost maybe— if I was to take that position, I might actually agree with Stackhouse. I think because mm. on the traditional view in the spectrum, you have I mean everything from Dante uh, to you know eternal conscious depression. You're just sad because God's not around. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 of...
2: Holding called it like being having only cold, warm, or cold, flat beer. Or sorry, warm, flat beer forever. <laughs>
0: right. right. <laughs> uh, but you hear that from some of this, this eternal separation anxiety, right? Uh, then you have, you know, you're, you're just swimming in lava and you won't die and you're screaming in, in absolute horror um, for all eternity. And it just it, so, so you have that kind of spectrum. But then the people will say, yeah, but the, the, the intensity of whatever version of hell you believe in on the traditionalist view on that spectrum uh, is commensurate with the amount of wickedness that you did in the body. You know, so, so you get repaid according to your works. And so they, they would execute, they, they, they would see that as in the, the amount of intensity and in the conscious torment that you would have. So I think mm-hmm. there's something there that I need to probably, one of those other little things I need to check the box. I'm still waiting to hear uh, uh, Marvin Jones's presentation because he's gonna be responding to fudge on the early church fathers, which I think is, because he's also a patristic scholar. So that, that's gonna be interesting. But I, I think the, the, the repay according to the works thing is one of the things I need to work out on both sides. Because it's kind of weird, because when I say I'm a fence-sitter, I think I'm sitting somewhere on the fence between the Stackhouse view you you mentioned, uh, and then somewhere between the... Um uh, probably the middle of the road between swimming in lava, you know, and the Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, except you never die like Belloc. You just melt off your face for all eternity. Somewhere between there and then the, the, just the sadness. You're kind of swimming yeah. in lava. You got
2: one toe dipped in a lava. Right. The,
0: the lady from uh, What Dreams May Come, you know, yeah. that, that kind of Yeah. Hit. Somewhere in there. So I've got, and I. I but here's the thing, I, one of the things that I'm going to be stressing is give people room to think, because I think that these guys, uh, and, and I still haven't read everything that you've ever written, you know, so I'm still on How my... How dare you? I know. <laughs> hey, I read a book and gave you a quote, that's good enough. Definitely. Uh, but, so I still got things that I want to, but there was enough there with your podcast, your, bu- your books, because you're the re- really the guy that got me to thinking, uh, uh, to rethink, <laughs> to Oh, boy. I know. I had to, <laughs> to, to rethink what I thought about hell, because I just yeah. kind of accepted the traditionalist view and moved on with it, just because I'm a big fan <clears> of tradition <throat> anyway. But <clears throat> um, but then when I was, uh, I think it was Glenn Peoples also did a thing on the early church fathers, and I got, well, I mean, that that's interesting, because, uh, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm the first five centuries, anything else is fair game. But the fact that there was communities there uh, and then I think Athanasius was a you know that's a big one for me. Uh, well,
2: that is if we us to right that he seemed to gravitate in that direction, and you know in in uh, in the incarn- on the incarnation of the Word, Athanasius sounds very much like a conditionalist right. yeah but-, but even if, but even if you don't think of Athanasius and Irenaeus and Ignatius and Clement, um, at the very least, you know, even if you were to dispute the conditionalist uh, uh, qualifications of all those guys, it, it, um, everybody agrees that Arnobius was a conditionalist and he was uh, before Augustine and yeah he's got some questionable uh, uh, positions because he was more of a philosopher than he was a theologian but nevertheless he is a respected church father and had a community of people that followed him and nobody was you didn't have people passing uh anathemas and councils against conditionalism right you know? here's so a, apparently the early church was okay with the diversity
0: right and they talk like it now the the, the argument against it is well those church fathers you know clement and athena they just use biblical language so that you can't cite that's the that's the argument i've heard from the other camp against y'all's use of those fathers and that to uh, me falls flat so i'm not buying that i'm not buying well, what telling just- that
2: Let me pick up on that just for a very brief moment. Uh, It's funny. It's ironic that you said that because it's typically we conditionalists who are having to say precisely what you just said in response to traditionalists. Because typically what traditionalists will do is they'll cite... Polycarp in, in his martyrdom saying, uh, re- referring to eternal fire, or Irenaeus referring to eternal fire, or, or worm not dying and fire not being quenched, or Augustine talking about eternal punishment. And they'll say, look, uh, all these church fathers they, they use these terms, so clearly they must have been traditionalists. Well, no. It's it's the very text of the scriptures that they're using that we're debating the meaning of. Right. But what's interesting about Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus of Lyon, Athanasius the Great, and Clement of Rome, what's interesting about them and others is that when they go beyond biblical language, and they start using language of their own making, they very much sound like conditionalists, and I'll give you one example. Irenaeus of Lyon in Against uh, Heresies, he talks about how God grants continuance and length of day forever and ever to those who are saved, and he he compares it to how God keeps the sun in existence for long-lasting periods of time. And he says God gives continuance and length of days forever and ever to the saved, but the lost deprive themselves of continuance and length of days forever and ever. Now, in using that language, Irenaeus is not using biblical language, right? So that gives us a little bit more clarity into how he understands the biblical language when he does use it. You know?
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the cover. My wife is looking forward to meeting you um, because she she she's gonna be all... a big letdown for her. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to go to dinner with you and Star at least once um, while we're... Is she going to... Is your wife going to be there?
2: No, nah, she doesn't typically come to the... Con, she she said she's willing to if um uh, if if we need volunteers or something like that. Uh, so she may be out. Probably not.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. my wife's coming because uh, she's into this. She she was on board. She listened to you. She listened to Steve Gregg. And even though Steve Gregg formally doesn't
1: pick a position... She was convinced. um, She's like Steve Gregg's wife. Uh, I knew who Chris Date was already, but when I went through Steve Gregg's whole New Testament and a bunch of the Old Testament verse by verse study, uh, one day I got bored with that and looked for Steve Gregg on other things, and he was on Rethinking Hell. And uh, he was telling, I think it was there that he was talking about um, how he went on a date with. Dana. His current wife, yeah, Dana, and, um, and he said something, he, she'd already been, always been bothered by the traditional view of hell, and so he explained, well, there are other options, and when he, she, when he explained that to her, he said, she said, you had me at hell. <laughs> 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 but, but, but yeah, so, okay, So um, so we're excited about the conference, we're excited for people to learn more about conditionalism. Let's be clear to listeners, if they go to that conference, what they're going to get is uh, a series of lectures or presentations. Um, uh, There's going to be a couple of traditionalists, I think, right? Yeah, two. And then there's going to be you on the other end, and then the fence-sitter, Jonathan Pritchett, in the middle, right? Right. But I won't be
0: fence-sitting for universalism. He's got,
1: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That's true. We don't have any universalists
2: at this conference, although we have had them at other conferences, because we do think it's a a conversation between three views of hell and not just two. Right. But... Just keep in mind the the examples that you just listed, those are only the plenary speakers. We also have a breakout session and that also has a diversity of views represented. Yeah, cool. So, well, that's, so that's... for example, So, for example, you guys might be familiar with uh, philosopher Jim Spiegel. Um, He just recently published a a book um, uh, in favor of conditionalism, and he's going to be one of the breakout speakers. But then on the other, and he's a conditionalist. In fact, he was a plenary speaker at one or two of our previous conferences. But then we've also got a breakout speaker named Zachary Manis, who was on the Rethinking Hell podcast a couple of months ago, and he's a traditionalist. Uh, but he's a super friendly guy, and he's going to be taking up a real, I think, a real good challenge. Um, I published in the Master Journal of Theology and Ministry several months ago, arguing that the atoning work of Christ is best uh, is most compatible with the conditional view, as opposed to the traditionalist view. And Zach and a co-author are going to be pushing back on that challenge. So, so it's so the diversity is not just in the plenary presentations; it's also in the breakout session.
0: Yeah. So that, that's good. That's what I like. Uh, sadly um, and you have i, I don't you have I, we've spoken about this just back and forth um, Trinity is one of those institutions where our doctrinal statement is pretty open as, as far as kind of a mere christianity we're we're not you know we, we don't push cessationism or or continuationism or Reformed theology, or, you know, uh, most, uh, most of that stuff, Calvinitarian, egalitarian, all that stuff's fair game here at Trinity, and including this, uh, this mm. issue. But there are a lot of seminaries that really have a problem with your view, uh, and within the ones that have a problem, some would say, well, it's very concerning, and then others are, it's heresy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, once and for all, give us a reason why it's not heretical to have your view and what you hope to accomplish as far as within the field of um is there any good news on that front that is becoming more acceptable to at least acknowledge it as a permissible view or is it still just kind of where it's been for the past 30 years
2: okay um so let me address the second question first um I do it does seem to me as if the um, tent is widening as it were um it you know there are still plenty of seminaries at which I can't teach or even learn plenty of churches at which I can't teach or even be a member um you know ministries I can't serve at those things all still exist and I don't see those necessarily. uh uh, reducing in number yet but on the ground you know uh uh, from from the grassroots perspective uh and in the and in the pastorate, you know churches i see uh, i see room being made uh and progress being made and that's really encouraging um i'm reluctant however to um to count my chickens you know before they've hatched because as i've often said there was a um uh, there was a uh, an explosion of conditionalist literature and support in the 19th century, both in America and in Europe. And there were conditionalists at that time who thought the the traditional view was on the verge of collapse, and they had all the uh, all the signs pointing in that direction. And yet, it didn't, you know, collapse. And, right. and the c- conditionalist view pretty much went back into obscurity. So, um, I'm hopeful, and you know. I, I, but, but I think that what it's really going to take to tip the scales to a point where they're never gonna go back, it's going to take um, people that are currently quiet about their belief in or at least their lean toward conditionalism they're, they're currently being quiet about it because they don't want to lose their livelihoods and I right. totally get it you know I've got four kids and a wife and I, I don't know what I would do if I lost my job that's what, one of the reasons I'm thankful I, I work in a secular world is I can do whatever I want on theology and not worry about losing my job right. um, so so I think it's gonna take some people that are in positions of prominence where they're currently they're keeping silent coming out of the proverbial closet on this topic being willing to throw their support behind it even if it means them losing their jobs and hopefully finding jobs at other institutions uh so that so that the 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 world of christian academia and and the christian pastorate they'll realize they can't continue to close doors to conditionalists because they're going to end up closing their
1: doors to too many people and
2: and too prestigious of people yeah and you you
1: say you say they need to come out of the closet while you are Physically in a closet right
0: (laughs) Right. now. I am. I am. (laughs) My my standard is no one in the first five centuries. No one in. No one in the the first four ecumenical councils, which is what every all of Christendom, the Vincentian canon type of thing. None of them condemned it. There's. I don't count the fifth. So even if you want to throw Origin under the bus and that that form of universalism, which I know there's a debate about that too. it doesn't matter because I, I only count the first four, so it's not heresy to me, yeah. and it's it's perfectly permissible. But well,
1: let, let's we get we're gonna have yeah. to close this down pretty quickly. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: Can
0: I can I answer the
1: first yeah, question? Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: So the first question was once and for all. Uh, you know, why is it a heresy? First now of all, why is it not a heresy? <laughs> or why is it not a heresy yeah did I say why is it a heresy yeah. Uh I meant not so first of all people can go to our YouTube channel youtube.com and just look for rethinking hell and one of the videos is a video that I made called you know is conditionalism an acceptable view or something like that so if, if people want more detail they can go to that but basically to sum it up it's got a rich a rich history uh, at least in the first several centuries of the church so it's not novel that's important number 2 it's not condemned by any of the ecumenical councils as as you just mentioned and that's important even even when diversity was known about you didn't see people condemning one another for it um and then i'll just add one more thing it doesn't touch on any of the essentials of the faith so uh you know i i most conservative evangelicals, I think, would say I'm orthodox on virtually every other doctrine. In fact, I'm conservative, more conservative than a lot of evangelicals. I'm a young earth creationist, Uh, you know, I believe in inerrancy, and so forth. So uh, no matter how conservative of an evangelical you are, you you can hold all the essentials of the faith, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by faith alone, the future resurrection of the dead, uh, the future return of Christ, all this stuff. And, and still believe in conditionalism and have it be consistent with that penal substitution it's also incidentally every single debatable view within Christianity uh, the all side of those debates are reflected in the c- conditionalist community cessationism continuationism primo post mill Amil etc so it, there, it doesn't touch on the essentials it's got a rich history there's it, never been them in ecumenical the councils and you um, every every debatable view within Christianity is reflected within the conditionalist community as well it's it's um I cannot think of any legitimate reason. the only the only the only thing I think anybody can press into service in arguing that it's a heresy are those who would say that, it requires you to believe that in the death of Christ the Trinity Trinity became a a binity, you know, or that or that the hypostatic union was violated. And we could talk about that another time if you want. But suffice it to say, no, those those aren't things that conditionalists actually believe. And I argue they're not logical entailments of our view. Um, so as far as I can tell, there's no reason whatsoever for thinking that it violates any of the essentials of the faith.
0: All right, man. Well, real well, quick before we go, name your website again. Uh, Any books you want to plug and your podcast you want to plug for our audience?
2: Sure. The website and podcast is RethinkingHell.com. We're also in the iTunes Marketplace. Uh, The conference information is at Rethinking Hell Conference. Dot com And for listeners who can't make it to Enid, Oklahoma, there's a lo- online viewing, you know, like a live streaming option as well. Um, August 16th, 17th, I hope people check it out. Books, you know, again, just go to my Amazon author page, amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date. I've got the Calvinism book, but then I've also got the two books on the topic of hell that I've edited uh, called Rethinking Hell and a Consuming Passion. Uh, people can also check out my academia.edu profile. Um, and there I've got the journal articles that I've published, which include three on this topic. Um, And, uh, you know, if people just want to connect with me, I'm available on Facebook, and uh, you can email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, and I'm super accessible, and I love talking about stuff with people who are interested in talking about it in a respectful manner. So. Yeah, Great. I guess I'll leave well, you guys
1: with that. Before we let you go, you know, there's there are there may be people that are listening to this program, and because this is a problematic view for some people, they think, well, yeah, hey, Braxton, uh, you didn't really push back on this issue, and I just want to say this: if it, and and I'm probably on a slightly different track than Chris on this. I don't know that he would agree with what I'm about to say or this approach to it, but um, I've been an evangelistic preacher for years. And I, But for a long time, uh, because I wanted to be faithful to the truth, if there's a chance at all that I'm wrong about this issue, as we said earlier, you want to be open about that. And I think that should go on the other side as well. And so mm-hmm. for those of you, when you preach evangelistic messages, or, or, or if you ever touch on hell in preaching through the Bible, and, and I'm talking about Gehenna hell, um, right. then what I, would, what I would say is you come to some place like Mark chapter 9 or something like that, Uh, Verses 54 and following, I think it is, or something like that. Am I right, Chris? 43 and following. 43 and following, yeah. It's good to have him around. Um, But whenever whenever you come to those passages, just read what Jesus says. No one can fault you for reading the words of Jesus, explaining them as best you understand the context and the cultural context and what he might be referring back to and all those kind of things. Um, But then saying, uh, what I've done for years is to say, look, here's what the Bible says about this. Now, Could it be that this should be understood differently? And you may even run over those things a little bit. Say, but whatever the case may be, the Bible is clear that this is a bad thing. (laughs) This is not something you wanna have anything to do with. And I think for those that are uncertain or, or not sure about it, just laying both of those options out there. And I can tell you this is a bit of an encouragement. I've been doing that for more than 10 years now when I preach and I've never once had anybody, even in the most conservative churches, I've never had anybody call me out for it or say you're leaving the door open for some sort of weird heretical thing or a liberal thing. I've I've never had any of that. So I think that there's more of an acceptability As as long as you're being open here. There's a couple of views at least that I wanna present you on this. I think people are open to that. You, you
0: normally just say, whatever your view of hell is, it's bad. Yeah, you know, don't <laughs> go there.
1: But listen, uh, Chris, we've really enjoyed having you on here, and and yes. we do have a, a great deal of affection for you. And um, listen, feeling's mutual. Yeah. And, oh, I appreciate that. And for those out there that, that maybe you don't like uh, the ministry that, that Chris is involved in, you can at least appreciate that he brings a level of civility. Um, and uh, is a model of how these theological debates and discussions should be Absolutely. done. And I have no question that he's an incredibly godly man. And um, so we're gonna we're gonna pray for you and all that you do going forward. And listen, we're excited uh, to see how what Dr. Pritchett will present at this conference coming up. And hopefully we won't have It'll to be issue. Wreck, hopefully man. we won't <laughs> have to issue any <laughs> apology any apology videos. <laughs> right. You but, probably but. will. <laughs> But thank, okay, thanks so much, Chris. And listen, uh, everyone else, check out our sister podcasts: uh, the Bible Bro and Soteriology One Hundred and One, and Steve Greg's The Narrow Path. And uh, Chris, any final thoughts?
2: Uh, no, it just it was, an, you know, a pleasure and an honor being here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes.
1: All right, and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.